Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our yep special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the doctor is in the house, Dr. Ivan Mahati. How are you, Doc? I'm very good, but it's not Sunday. Well, it isn't. Well, it's, it isn't now, but it is now. So. It, it's Sunday when they, you know, yeah, our members, which is now. Or our, our, our listeners are That's listening right. to it. That's right. Which is now. She's now. So it's officially Sunday. Right. And Thursday. Okay, so I'm basically going to be on leave tomorrow. Are you? No, I'm not, I mean, if it's Sunday, then that's... You're from Monday. Yeah, well, I guess. I'm confused. I'm All right. <laughs> Actually, well, you're working tomorrow, because tomorrow's Friday. As well as Monday. So you're working both days. That doesn't sound fair. You have to work twice as much tomorrow. How's <laughs> that for a tangent, fools? Mate, we have got a absolute jam-packed mailbag, as I mentioned, on Friday. The questions have come thick and fast, and that's exactly the way we like it. So let's get on to answering some of those. First question comes from the God of Thunder himself, <laughs> from Zeus. Okay, I love Did it. Did you not? He says, boys, new listener here. Welcome, Zeus. Thank you. Please, please uh, just put a kind word in to Thor and the other mm. gods voice if you wouldn't mind. Mm. Can you please delve into the topic of investing whilst having a mortgage? I have roughly $300,000 on my home loan at fairly low interest. I'm torn between paying that down quickly or jumping into an ETF. I'm sure this will help other listeners also. Cheers, Zeus. That's a pretty good question, mate, because it's one that we get semi-regularly. It's it's mm-hmm. the perennial, perennial question, perennial challenge. I don't have a very strong, clear, simple answer, so I hope you do. What do you say to Zeus, mate? Do you pay extra off the mortgage or do you start investing? Okay, so I have some rules of thumbs around this, uh, which I can share of what I do. Um, So one of the things to realize right now is that interest rate basically is nothing, right? So keeping a lot of money, um, you know, paying off your debt quickly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is actually a disadvantage. Because uh, let's say you have an asset worth you know, half a million dollars and then you're paid up, paid down that half a million dollars, that half a million dollars is actually doing nothing for you. Yeah. If you can borrow that money and actually grow it at 10%, then you're doing something with it. So that's number right. one. That doesn't, however, mean that you borrow the whole thing or more and then basically get yourself into trouble. So it's basically a balance sheet management question here mm. at that point. Um, I, I think what you want to do is you want to have some funds, let's say six months worth to maybe a year's worth of funds available, yep. uh, living expenses plus mortgage payments and everything else. So living expenses includes mortgage payments. Yep. So you want to have that kind of buffer that even if bad stuff happens like COVID or whatever yeah. else, yeah. then you would be fine, right? You'd, you'd not be in, 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 in mortgage stress, for mm-hmm. example. After that, I think, you know, Given the situation with interest rates and given where the interest rates are likely to be, and again, nobody would know for sure, but it looks like interest rates are not going to increase for a long time, which means um, if you can compound at 10, 12, 15%, uh, it makes no sense to pay 2% yeah, exactly. and have your money stuck there. Yep. So that's, uh, I think, my thinking. Now, I'll caveat this, but some people like to be low debt or no mm-hmm. debt, mm-hmm. and that's a personal choice. And again, you, you're then trading off um, returns for sleep at night yeah. or yep. m- m- you know mental peace or whatever else it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no right answer here, but yeah. the practical answer would be to to try to maximize investments because uh, after having uh, enough rainy day mon- uh, funds. 
Yep, good answer, mate. I will say something very, very similar. Um, I'll, I'll make it slightly different. I, look, I think, yeah, it, it comes down for mine that there is, as with all these things, and firstly, Zeus, um, and for everyone else listening, as we always say, but always bears repeating, we can't give you personal advice, so we can't say what you should do. What we can say is generally what the options are and what we would advise generally, uh, but you need to consider your own personal circumstances and needs and objectives and risk appetite and all that kind of fun stuff. So Zeus, make sure you do that. Um, on top of that, mate, look, here's the thing. It's it's The rational answer is very clear. If you can earn effectively, you know, you're getting two and a half percent. If you if you So you should be paying the lowest possible rate. So let's assume, firstly, you've got the best rate you can, Zeus. If you've done that, you're paying two and a half percent. Now, that is a tax-free return. So let's, you know, that's probably the equivalent of three and a half percent before tax, give or take. So the first thing is to allow for that. You need to change, you need to kind of, um, because you pay tax on gains from investment, you don't pay tax on the mortgage interest you save by paying down earlier. So let's let's adjust that. So let's say that, the, let's assume that the pre-tax saving or the, the equivalent saving is about three and a half percent from your mortgage. Um, if you could earn more than three and a half percent anywhere else, you should take that other option. If you had, you know, two investment options, someone said, here's a 3.5% return, here's a 5% return, which one do you want? All things being equal, you would take the higher return. Now, mortgage is also risk-free. So you could earn 5% in shares, you could earn minus 5, you could earn 10. So also you need to be mindful of that. If you invest badly, then a 3.5% guaranteed is much, much better than losing 50% on some specky miner. So again, don't do that. Now, you mentioned an ETF, Zeus, which is awesome. So that's not you, but just for those listening, that's one of the things that we need to be mindful of. Um then you got to think about what the return is likely to be on your shares. Now, Doc says 10 to 12%. That's his sort of goal. Um, he's a smart investor. He'll probably do that. Many people won't. And in fact, there is some supposition that, and you do, I think you've said yourself, Doc, the long-term returns on shares are likely to be lower in the intermediate future than they have been in the past, partly because rates are already so low. So you kind of, there is no easy free lunch on that one. Um, shares prices are higher. The average PE is higher, which by definition, it suggests lower average future returns than in the past. Now, again, maybe that doesn't happen, but it probably does. So maybe don't think about, you know, two, two and a half versus 12. You might think about three and a half, as I said, for 12 tax versus maybe six or seven. And then think about, okay, that's still bigger. So again, it's still worth doing if you want to take the risk and if you think you can get the average investment return. And then lastly, as Doc said, it's the emotional component. So, you know, I've said before, I think on this podcast, I'm sure I have actually multiple times, uh, our family, we've decided to pay more off the mortgage than is rationally sensible. <laughs> because again, purely rationally, if I was a machine and a robot, um, or if we didn't have that, you know, debt and, and whatever, for us, it's worth something more than cash to have the security of having more of our home paid off. If, if you know, I was being perfectly rational, I have a very high belief that the market in general or me as a stock picker specifically can beat the mortgage rate. And so it would actually make rational sense for me to take as much money out of the mortgage as I could and invest a lot where I get the best growth. So that would be the rational decision. But when you combine the rational and the emotional or the simple, you know, sleep at night test as Doc says, the way you want to live your life, um, it's not always worth living on the very, very, very edge because you're taking way, way more risk. Uh, and so for me and for our family, we've decided to put more on the mortgage. That would rationally be the case if we were being purely numerical about it rather than taking those other things into account any more reflection on that doc after my after my diatribe nope let's do it next one next one look he's ringing in the changes that takes to dom dom says hi scott i hope you're enjoying your holiday with the family i was mate i had a fantastic time away thank you for asking uh great time of fresh air and just a really relaxing time and camp by the river which was lovely 
All right, he says, I've enjoyed your commentary on the budget over the past couple of days. Thank you, mate. It has helped me with understanding what we are facing. Now, we'll take a quick stop there. We talk about, Doc, every week, um, the foolish mailing list people can join, which does have some marketing, also some other stuff. Uh, I do send an email about twice-ish a week, three three times a week on a good week, uh, with just some thoughts on the economy or the markets or stocks or companies or investing. So if you do want to see that, we also try and push those links on social, by the way. So I'm not going to ask you to only sign up to the marketing for the sake of it, uh, but certainly you'll get the emails there when they come out. Otherwise, keep an eye on our social accounts. Uh, I did do a commentary on the budget this week. So if you want to have a look at that, jump on the Twitter account or jump on Facebook and you can find that there. All right. As always, I have a couple of questions for you, please. Number one, I recall you mentioning on a podcast that your SMSF and personal share portfolio are very similar. That's true. As a newbie, I'm trying to understand the best approach to manage and build both my super and share portfolio. Should I think of these as one entity and look to diversify accordingly, or should I take a different approach, e.g. low risk in super, higher risk outside? So he's got a second question, Doc, but let's start with that one. Um, you've said in the past before your your super is very different for, for kind of personal reasons. You've got some property in your super. But as a as a think about the share portfolio, maybe even include super if you want, property if you want, but if you think about your personal share portfolios or you were to give advice in general, not specifically to Dom, uh, but some general advice, how would you think about super and personal portfolios? Would you consider them as one entity and consolidate them? Would you put certain stocks in certain portfolios or certain approaches? How do you think about your investing? Well, it like so. I mean, the simplest strategy is, I think, what you were doing, which is basically thinking of them as one whole entity, right? I mean, while they're they're held at different places, I mean, it 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 is easier to think of them as one entity. It doesn't make sense to have, uh, unless you for for very some specific reasons, you want to have a different strategy, which is you know you want to generate some income in your super, then maybe you want to have income focused strategy. But if it, but otherwise, I think you can have a very similar strategy when it comes to investing shares. Yep. It doesn't, you know, that, that actually frees up your mental capacity. Uh, but, you know, if you want to do other things in the super, like we do, we have uh, property investment, commercial property investment mm. inside super. Um, th- th- those are different things that people can do. And then again, I think it gets complex because I think there's a bit of... Um, personal circumstances and what works like you know i have i have certain illiquid assets inside super largely mm-hmm. because the super is held over a very very long period of yeah. time and you know so i have um, i'm doing that but yeah i have thought about also opening um, an account for shares but if i had op- an account for shares it would roughly mimic yeah. some proportion of what i do otherwise yeah i, I completely agree dom i don't really i, I haven't <sighs> I haven't ever. I mean, my investing is pretty is pretty simple. I've never really specifically aimed to either make it the same or different. <laughs> it just so happens that if I've got a good idea and I've got some cash in my personal account, and cash in my super account, then if that's my best idea, I tend to buy it in either or both accounts, depending on what the cash position is and, and a whole lot of other stuff. So I don't tend to differentiate for myself. Um, a couple of things you might want to think about. Um, generally speaking, uh, you, obviously, super is tied up for a very long time. So think about how you might put money into super as opposed to which companies you buy and if you want to think about personal and super in that context I just don't see a really good reason I my, my, I mean I think people sometimes think well okay super's for real proper money and personal's for play money and I, I kind of get that at some level but I have to say I, you know, I, I will say that I think share investing is one of those funny things. If you went and spent 100 bucks at the casino, people say you were gambling and wasting your money. People will buy $5,000 worth of some sort of specky stock and say, well, I'm saving a punt. 
It's like, man, would you go and put $5,000 on Reddit at the casino? Um, so I'm not saying don't take risk in either of those portfolios. I'm just saying just res- resist the urge to feel like somehow you know, if, you, if you take that to its conclusion, some people might say, well, super's for real money and, and personal's for play money. I don't know. If you want to play with five or 10 grand, dude, take 100 bucks, play at the casino, put the rest in super. Um, so, you know, just, just, just a little bit careful with that. I don't think, you know, I, don't want, I want people to use super as an excuse to take more risk than they should in their personal portfolio, put it that way. Uh, otherwise, look, I think same is, same is perfectly fine. Um, I feel like, I mean, if, as it turns out, for example, my US shares are only in my own name because I didn't have an SMSF when I, when I opened that account. And so that's where most of the, where the shares are. Just, again, it happens to be that way. Um, my ASX shares... Uh, there's some different companies in my personal account because I've had them for longer and then I had them SMSF more recently. So more of my new best ideas have gone on that one. But there's no reason why you should see them as different different amounts. Do make sure you do compare them and consolidate them though when it comes to things like weighting and exposure, right? So if I had a portfolio that was already, I don't know, 50% Woolies in super, I probably wouldn't buy Woolies in my personal account just to make them the same. So don't make them the same for its own sake. Add the numbers together and work it work. Think about it as a, a single portfolio. Is that, is that kind of sense? So rather than saying, "Well, I want Woolies in both, and Coles in both, and BHP in both," um, you could do that if, if that's how you built it up. But don't do it just because. Rather than that, look at it and say, "How much Woolies do I want in my overall portfolio?" When I put those two numbers together, and make sure that's appropriate, whichever whichever uh, strategy, whichever account it sits in. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Think of it as a consolidated one portfolio. Think about percentages allocation as one. I think that makes a lot of, lot of sense to me. We're agreeing way too much, Doc. We'll have to find a disagreement. Here you go. Number two from Dom. Let's see if we can disagree here. What are your thoughts regarding the split between Australia, US, and international shares in general? To date, I have followed your share advisor recommendations for the Australian shares, including exposure to the US with the NASDAQ ETF. And I'm now thinking about investing in US companies, but I'm not certain of what percentage of my portfolio I should allocate to US and international companies. And he goes on a bit of a tangent, I think we'll answer it anyway, which got me thinking also, if I was a US citizen, would I even bother with the AU market since we are quite small? I may be overthinking it. <laughs> so Dom, uh, Doc, sorry, not Dom. Doc, for Dom's question, what should our listeners be thinking in terms of the split between Australia and the rest of the world? Okay, so Dom, that's a good question, but probably I would twist the question a little bit. Oh. And I would say that the question to ask is not which market to invest in, not what but rather, I think the question to ask is which uh, are the best, what are the best companies I can invest in that give me or for my chosen level of risk and reward requirements, yep. uh, the best outcomes. I love right? that answer. And it's really, I consider my market, my investing is completely market agnostic yep. um, and largely because I don't actually care. It's yeah. if the, if the, you know, there is, there's no benefit by putting more dollars into an Australian company, I don't benefit the Australian company. It's like you know, there's no nationalistic um, patriotism or anything else involved in putting money in Australia or for that matter in, I don't know, somewhere else, completely in, in Antarctica if a company was available again. You know, investing in the secondary market is all about returns you know, on a risk-adjusted basis. Yeah. So depending on what your strategy is, you should find the companies that fit the best strategy and that's where you should invest. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think that's how I think about it. Uh, yeah. I think that's exactly right. I love that answer. Is, you know, rather than artificially creating these buckets, it's a bit like super versus personal, Dom, as you, as you rightly point out. How much in the US, how much in Australia? Well, think about it as one portfolio and say, where do I want to put my money? Um, that's a super important question, Doc. I'm going to add some, just some nuance, mate, just to, to round out some, some thoughts. And again, you can jump back in if you want. Um, 
I so the only thing, the only couple of things here. The first is that you do have the currency movement, so time frame matters. And I've I've said, you know, Doc mentioned about you know, having towards living expenses in response to another question recently. Um, if in terms of thinking about the shares you own, we would normally say don't have any money in the market in the next three to five years. Um, I would say five plus years for any international currency denomination because you might find if you need money in I don't know three and a half years, and the US dollar is at or the Australian dollar is at a dollar ten US. That's a really terrible time to be bringing money back from the US. If you need that money at that point, even if the share's high, you may just you, you don't want to be forced to sell at the wrong share price. That's what we say three to five years, but also at the wrong currency. And the more variables you put in there, share price plus currency, the longer time frame I'd look for those US shares. So I would personally, and Doc, you may disagree, uh, but I would personally have a longer time frame for any US money I put. So I would add that probably to my thinking and think, okay, well, gee, 90% of my best ideas are in the US, but I know I'm going to need money in three years. I'd be saying, well, how about think about just, just you know, maybe reorienting that just slightly so you're not forced to, to to sell either a bad share price or in the US case at a bad currency. So that, that's, that's probably the key one for me. Um, second one is just that broad idea of, I think, Diversification is important, right? So I would think about you mentioned U.S. international, Dom. Uh, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't think of U.S. or international individually or separately as buckets. Um, we know that I've used this stat before. I haven't seen updated numbers in years, Doc. You may have actually, but the S and P. I want to say three or four years ago, something like 50 percent of the revenues of S and P five hundred companies actually came from outside the U.S. So in that sense, when you're buying U.S. companies, you're really buying global companies anyway. So I wouldn't think about U.S. international as separate buckets for its own sake. Um, last thing I would say is. Think about diversification. So while Doc, while Doc says, you know, think about the whole lot as a group, um, you also want to think about just as you build that group out, where the diversification kind of comes in. So if I had, I don't know, uh, 90% of my money in Australian companies, I'd feel really uncomfortable with that. If I had 90% of my money in US companies that were only US domicile and only did business in the US, I'd feel uncomfortable with that, that as well. So just think about, you know, diversification in terms of revenue flows, not market location. As Doc says, don't buy based on where the, where the company is, is, what exchange it's on. Also, don't buy just on the basis of the country it's domiciled in. So, you know, Australian company, I mean, there are certain companies that do 90% of their business overseas. Is that an Australian company? Well, kind of, but not really. Um, similarly, the same in reverse. So just think about the diversification of your portfolio by industry, by geography, by currency as you build it. Uh, be absolutely exchange agnostic, but don't be business agnostic or business risk agnostic when you think about diversification and risk management. Anything more to add on that, Doc? Um, no, I think that fairly covers everything. If I was a US citizen, Dom, uh, I would absolutely think about the Australian market, but again, only in the same context that Doc's already mentioned, which is if there are companies in Australia that, that are better than the ones I can buy overseas, if I liked buy now, pay later, for example, um, you know, I wouldn't ignore Australia because it's small. I wouldn't buy it just because it's there either. But if I liked Afterpay and it was one of my best ideas, I'd buy it because it was there. Same as if it was a great UK company that happened to do something wonderful. Uh, let's pick Shell. Um, I'm not a particular oil investor, but if you were and you liked it and you wanted to buy it, then you buy it because it's a great business no matter what exchange it's on. So I think the same applies in both directions. All right, Doc, last one. Finally, he says, this is to me, so you may have it. You've recently recommended Nearmap as a buy, a best buy now. We did. I already hold a position, which has recently dropped considerably. Would you recommend adding to my position at this point? I have every intention of holding on until SA, that's share advisor, advises me to sell. As always, thank you for your help, Dom. Doc, talk to me about how you think about Best Buys now for your service. Show me an email particularly if you want. Best Buys now in terms of it's already fallen. Do you add more when it's fallen? Do you add more because it hasn't fallen? Do you? How do you think about the share price movement, the, the current allocation, and buy more Best Buys now? 
Well, so I try. It's hard, but I try not to think too much about the share price movement in in itself because it really the share price moves up and down because it moves up and down. Um, now, allocation. I think the, a simple way to think about allocation is, uh, and this is aside even from Best Buy's now, right? I mean, allocation is if I like a company and I think I'm getting good value right now and my allocation is not overweight or I want to increase the allocation, then I can just buy. That's the way I think about allocation. But that does mean that there is a limitation. I, I do put, uh, try to think about the absolute amount in terms of percentage that I want to devote to a company. Um, and I don't, I try not to exceed that. And that, that, what is that cap again, depends on individuals, depends on the company, depends on the amount of risk you want to take and things like that. So that, that's, that's, that's my general philosophy in terms of adding. Now, when it comes to the best buys now that we do, it it's effectively a reflection of what are three, four, five, however many best buys nows are being uh, are being recommended. Those are sort of from the from the companies that are on our scorecards that are buys. We we are saying these are good opportunities to add money to at this point in time that's and 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 that this point in time is important so that basically means that at this point in time the team thinks that those are good good mm. stocks to mm. buy and and whether or not you want to actually act on that really depends on your allocations right whether you want to add to it or not you know that's why there are four or five ideas that's been given you know you don't have to buy all of them you could buy the ones that you want to the ones that need need to add and things like you feel like adding to i think that that's the way to to think about that and again dissociate the share price the share price could be up share price could be down for x number of reasons and in the short term the share price really says nothing so yep great summary mate um i will add only a couple of thoughts um <clears throat> you said it's recently dropped considerably as doc says i wouldn't i wouldn't it wouldn't matter whether it's gone up or down so if it's a best buy now it's a best buy now at the current price we don't ever look at price prices as um, reasons for making stocks best buys now in in and of themselves right if of course if it's cheaper we either normally would like it more but we don't like it more because it's fallen, if that makes sense. So, you know, if, if it was if a stock's two dollars and then it's one dollar, the fact it's fallen is not really relevant. The fact that we like it at a dollar is is relevant, right? Same as if it went from two to three, we don't like it because it's risen or not risen. We like it because it's attractive at three bucks. So, I know that feels like a it feels like a strange um, distinction to make, but it's actually a really really important one, right? Buying stuff just because it's fallen, you would have bought a whole lot of rubbish companies that just fell and fell and fell and fell and fell and kept falling. That being said. Um, there's plenty of companies that fall in value because the market just hates them for a short period of time that have been fantastic investments. The reverse is also true. Companies that go up aren't bad value just because they've gone up. In fact, as Doc said many, many times, um, often he adds to companies as they go up because they're, they're proving out their strategy. So um, the, the recently dropped bit, I would just take out of the question as, as Doc says. Um, best buys, here's, here's a, a bit of insight quickly. This is not an ad by the way, but the way our services run. Our best ideas in any given month are our recommendation. We make an official recommendation that goes on our scorecard every month. That's our best idea. So if you're looking to buy something, we would say that's the company to buy. If Nearmap was our best idea, we would have re-recommended it and made it our official monthly recommendation. Best buys now are a summary of the stocks that are the best ideas for people looking to put more money into the market. Now, if you like Nearmap and you feel like you want to add some more to your portfolio, we think now is a great time. So we would say recommend it and buy it. Uh, but A, it's not our best, best idea. And B, um, we're not saying, you know, keep buying. We, one of the things that some of us have said before is, oh, it's been a Best Buy now five times. They must really, really love it a lot. 
no, no, it's just been the best idea that many times. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we should buy five times as much of it. Uh, we did have some members a while ago. We wrote a couple of articles about this to make sure they knew who would buy it every time it was a Best Buy Now and they had this massively overweighted portfolio. Just because a company's a Best Buy Now five times in a row, just, the share price might stay low. And so it's like, if you want if you want the best company, we think it's that one. But we're not saying buy it every single time and end up with a you know 48% of your portfolio in the company just because we've picked it as a Best Buy Now a few times. It does show conviction. But that is not the same as saying we should overweight it. That being said, mate, I'm not saying don't buy it either. I'm saying if you like it, you haven't got enough of it, and you want more of it, we think it's a good price. All right. Um, Dom, hopefully that helps. We've got a question from Jake, Doc. This one's for you, mate. Now, Jake, you should know better than this, but we'll go with it. He says, hi, Scott. Thank you for answering my question on the podcast a few weeks ago. It really helped me. You're welcome. He says, I've now signed up to EO. Sorry, I know it's not yours. <sighs> anyway, Jake, come on, help me out here, mate. Anyway, so I will get there. I'll hold you to that, Jake. I want you to tell me when you've signed up to Share Advisor, mate. Please do that. All right. Um, he says, I signed up. So the latest recommendation uh, that Doc made, and it looks like I've missed the boat. The limit order was $2.35, and it's now at $2.53. So do I just leave that now and wait for the next recommendation? He says in brackets, I know, no personal advice. Lol. Yes, we're going to personal advice, Jake, of course. But Doc, talk to me about um, talk to me about share price limit orders. Now, limit orders make some sense. A limit order basically tells the broker only buy the shares at a maximum of X, whatever price you put. In this case, it was two thirty-five. Was the price you guys said was the most people should pay? It's a two fifty-three. Now that's eighteen cents higher. Let's call that was it eight percent among friends, something like that, maybe seven percent. Um, as I do my quick mental maths. Um, so that's not nothing. It, should he be missing? Should he be giving it a miss because it's above that limit order price, or should he be moving on? So uh, uh, I think we've talked about this sort of dynamic before. So one of the things to realize with um, extreme opportunities is we are looking at smaller companies. Smaller companies, by definition, have um, you know smaller floats. Well, the total amount of dollars that you can actually trade on a smaller company is going to be less compared to a bigger company. It's just the size is small, and and then some of these companies tend to be tightly held, which result in an even smaller float. So one of the things which we don't want. We don't want this to happen. We don't want the shares to go up simply because um, our members are pushing the price up, right? And that's what we mean by, uh, you know, we often sometimes would see a, the share price pop. That is, we have made a recommendation and because of a bunch of people trying to buy that stock at the same time, you know, you basically trample over each other and, and push the price up because of sellers notice that the sellers would notice yeah, that there's yeah. a bunch of requests coming in to buy at a certain point yep. and they would push up the price so the, uh, the our reason for putting limit prices is not a call on valuation yeah it is a call on trying to uh restrain the animal spirits yeah just restrain <laughs> the animal spirits and and just 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 you know helping other buyers from just giving free dudes. money free money to <laughs> sellers right because the sellers will notice like oh there's a slew of orders coming in okay yep. i can jack up the price now <laughs> and then if if the buyers then say oh i need to pay more and then they you know the the increase the button the price yeah, on it yeah. then the bid price then the seller says oh okay i can ask even more now yeah. so and and you'd be surprised how much computer and other things work in the background right. that can actually um, take advantage of, of a certain uh, you know, spread of buy orders, yeah. right? So that's really that. It's just trying to help. Uh, and then we always say that his recommendation, stick, try to stick with a limit price for 
um, let's say a week. In this particular case, we said a week. And if it doesn't work out within a week, then we do say that you know it, it's it's always a good idea that if you like the company to consider taking a small position anyways. Um, and and the the reason, and I always say small because couple of things to remember. A, these companies are small, um, which means there's, a, there's amped up risk. There's, there's potential for great reward, but there's also potential for loss, right? Yeah. The other thing to realize is if a small company is going to 10x yeah. or 5x or whatever, a large number, large amount of upside, you can scale into it and buy at other points, right? Yeah. So. It doesn't matter if if the company is going to forex and you you know it has gone up twenty percent and you buy some more after that. Well, you're going to still get not forex, but maybe a little bit less than that. But it's still a huge amount of gain. Yeah. Right. Correct, so correct. so therefore, <laughs> and and then if it you know if it has gone up two x and now it's going to go up, let's say potentially another two x from there. Yes, you're not going to get four x, but you're going to get two x. Two x is not bad. Two x yeah. is great. Yeah. Right. So. As you learn about the company and as you get, you know, and the share price typically increases with, uh, you know, the company performing well, the company becoming better, the company's outlook becoming more certain relative to what it was before. Yep. So you're you're reducing risk. The risk reduction to some extent compensates uh, for the fact that you're getting less upside. Yep. So, you know, buy over time is really, really works well. And buy over time for good companies works really well. Um, you know, uh, take, you know, like CSL is a, is a great example, right? I mean, you could have bought that company you know any any number of times over the last maybe 10 15 years and you would have done okay <laughs> right it doesn't mean that if you bought it 15 years ago uh and and you got a good price at that point doesn't mean that you shouldn't have bought it again because at least with the benefit of hindsight it looks like you know you yeah. have multiple opportunities to buy this company so that's the way to think about this um so yeah you know be patient in the first week and then don't quibble over you know five ten percent over over the next week mm. i like it all right i have nothing to add i think that's, I think that's perfectly good advice so hopefully that helps you jake um I, I will say one thing which is just we try to be roughly right rather than precisely wrong so um, get, getting getting it around the right price is better than than trying to get be so super specific that you kind of disappear in a world of you know kind of paralysis by analysis as they say <laughs> Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Christopher Percy, mate. This is interesting. And it's one about the structure of a, of a rights offer. Now, I will say I own shares in corporate travel management. So let's get that out of the way first. Percy says, hi, Scott and Doc. Still loving your podcast. Thank you, mate. Keep up the good work, he says. Now, quick question. I have received an offer from corporate travel. What is a non-renounceable offer? Four to one. The document states the shares do not trade in the ASX, nor can be sold, transferred, or otherwise disposed. Hashtag confused. Hashtag get doc on Tinder. I won't ask you if you're on Tinder, Doc, because I assume you're not. And if you are, frankly, you don't want to answer that on a podcast, given your lovely wife is, well, probably not listening, but you know, you're, you wouldn't be on Tinder. I know you. So let's go to Percy's question. He is confused. Hashtag confused. What is a non-renounceable offer? And why can't they be trade on the ASX, sold, transferred, or otherwise disposed? Okay, so rights offer basically says that for you know every share you own or every ten shares you own, the company is giving you the right to buy, um, a de or a definitive right to buy X number of shares. So let's say for ten every ten shares, maybe they give you two more shares that you can buy at a certain price, right? There is certainty there in terms of how many shares you'll be able to get and how much you have to pay for it. So that's a rights offer. Now the rights offer could be uh, what's called renounceable, which means well. 
suppose you don't have the money to fork out right now. Well, what do you do with the rights offer? The rights offer means yeah. basically nothing. Zilch to you, right? I don't have money to pay. COVID is going on. Uh, I don't have spare cash. And now you're, you're giving me this offer, which I can't really do anything. Well, if it was renounceable, you could trade it, give it to somebody else who would want to partake and take advantage of your rights, uh, the right that you have. And for transferring the rights, you'd be able to actually get some money. There's, so that so rights offer theoretically have value uh, because of that reason. And non-renounceable basically means that the company is saying you can't transfer it, you can't give it to it. So your choice is to either take it or basically be diluted. Use it or lose it, baby. Oh, use it or lose it. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a, it's a strategy which says, well, I, I you know, uh, it's it's a little bit of a gamble, maybe yeah. that you know the company is basically trying to force you to give give the money. Yeah, by um, <laughs> Uh, but you can, like, you know, I, I don't fault these fault companies largely because I think there is a problem for companies when they have to raise money from retail shareholders. This yeah. is this is a this is an Australian thing. It's very common to raise money from retail shareholders. This doesn't happen in many other markets. In other markets, basically, the money is raised from institutional shareholders. At one go, you actually don't even know that they're raising the money. They raise the money and say we have raised money, yep. right? That simplifies the process. You don't get to involve, and that takes away sort of the you know the benefit of that is that it takes away some of the volatility that comes to the share price, you know, or the the lack of knowledge of how much you'll be able to raise, especially if the offers are underwritten or not underwritten and things like that. Yeah. Um, the, the positive here is that you get to participate in it, but then the flip side for the company is that, well, if people don't have the money, then there's a problem for them. So uh, the company sometimes trying to, in the corporate travel in this, in this case is basically arm twisting and trying to make sure that the money is raised. So that's that. I mean, uh, I don't know much about the company. So the, Scott knows a lot more about this company than I do, so I, I don't have any specific views on the company. But that I think what it means is basically saying, well, you can participate in rights offer or forget about it. So. Yeah, pretty much, mate. This is I. Uh, so I've given Cooper Travel uh, some some credit in the past. Um, they have usually used more shareholder friendly messages or approaches than this, which is you actually get the rights, and the rights can be traded on the ASX, and they do have value. So that is a renounceable rights offer. Um, you get the rights, you can ex exercise those rights and buy the shares or you can sell the rights and they have some nominal value and the, the value of the right is the difference between the price you've got to pay for the shares and the price the shares are trading at right now. Now the rights offers at $13 something, the shares are currently at 17 bucks. So in a perfect world, that right's worth $4, right? Because if you exercise it, you make an instant profit of four bucks or you can sell it to somebody else and they can exercise it and make that profit. And so the right should trade on the market. They have done that before. They're one of the few companies that does it actually. And that's usually, and I'm a shareholder, as I said, usually been something I've been really, really impressed with. This time they haven't done that. I, I could mark me down as slightly less impressed because of it. But um, as Doc's already mentioned otherwise, if you're going to raise money from shareholders to do an acquisition, you kind of can't fall short by definition. Like it doesn't, you know, if you raise half the money you want, you can't do the acquisition. The acquisition has been announced, the deal's been done. Um, assuming it's value accretive for the company, assuming the directors have done their job properly um, and shareholders like the deal, then they need the capital to make it work. Now, could they have raised debt? Probably, but do you want to raise debt in this sort of environment? I doubt it. Um, frankly, also raising money as a travel company with a, with a renounceable offer, uh, you may find investors don't support you because, hey, you know it's a tough time to be a, a, a travel company shareholder. So there are reasons why they've used it that way. As I said, I, I'm not super keen on it I'd rather they didn't but I understand why they have in this particular case um, as I said I've, I've given Ferris Jamie Ferris the CEO credit before at this time I'll give him a the benefit of the doubt given that he has used the right strategies in the past and I have to believe he wants to do or thinks he should do the right thing when he can um, that might be too generous and time will tell 
In terms of uh, the the idea, yeah, it's a, it's a one for four. So for every four shares you hold, you can get one more share at that discounted price. You have to send them the money though to do that. If you don't send them the money, you will be diluted. One for four is a big deal, right? That's effectively a 20% dilution. Um, so, you know, you will be, you know, you will have less of the company left over afterwards. Now, if they're buying a company that's value accretive, you don't necessarily earn less money out of it, but you certainly share less upside. So there is there is some valid reasoning there. Um, I will say, what day is this? This is going out on Sunday. Um, we will likely have between now and then advised our members to take up those rights just for full disclosure. Um, again, because I own shares, the Motley Fool also owns shares as one of our real money portfolios. Um, because the discount is so big that it makes some sense. There's $4 on the table of profit straight away. Whether you want to have greater exposure, whether you want to sell those shares subsequently is up to you. Be mindful of capital gains, tax rules, of course, and, and uh, act accordingly. If you already have enough for corporate travel, I would absolutely say don't don't buy more. As we've said in other capital raising cases, just because there's a rights offer, if they're already, I don't know, 30% of your portfolio, don't make it 35% unless you really want to. Um, so again, just be mindful of those things as always. But generally speaking, it's just there is a bit of a gun to the head when companies do it at such a big discount because you kind of have to take part because why wouldn't you? Um, on the other hand, you know, if you believe in what the company's doing, you believe they're making a good deal, it actually makes us take part as long as the shareholding remains a reasonable proportion. Doc, you've talked about that in the answer to a, a previous question to make sure you've got the right allocation across the companies in your portfolio. Anything on there, Mike? No, I'm nothing to add. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. Question from Stuart. Stuart asks about a company called Family Zone. He says, Sky Scott, I'd be interested in your thoughts on Family Zone. Absolutely staggering student signups and a massive addressable market. We'll need capital, but at a market cap of less than $200 million, is this one the market is overlooking? Now, Doc, I've done no research on this one, but I thought you might know the company. Do I right or have I assumed wrongly? Um, I've only briefly looked at it. I don't have a any formed view on this company so i'll just say pass <laughs> <laughs> fair enough yeah look i i think the the i think the, the there's, a, there's a funny thing about addressable markets right like at, at, for great companies they're massive upside potential the, the likes of buy now pay later we've talked about on friday um big addressable markets matter the only thing i would say is you want to make sure there is enough um traction that that addressable market is going to be able to be achieve right if, if i was going to make toothbrushes i said well the, the dress will market seven billion people of course i can look how big that is buy my buy shares my toothbrush company um you, you, and that look you know i'm being i mean a little bit facetious i'm not i'm not being anti-family zone by the way but it's that, that question like well just because the dress market's there you've got to believe that a there is some potential for that market to be met and b the traction is there now you say there are big student signups. I'm sure that's true. So maybe this is a business that's worth looking more into. Um, one of the great things about the Motley Fool is we get to say, I don't know. Um, many, many of our peer competitors don't get to say that because they're, they're expected to know stuff. Um, we don't know. So just wanted to raise that and, and make the point and then go from there. Sorry, Stuart. Can't help you with that one. Question from Colin. <laughs> now, Colin's, Colin's gone for the full, full court press butter up here, mate. He says, good morning, the Honourable El Presidente Esquire. Colin, you've, you've absolutely reached deep, deep, deep for that one, mate. I deeply appreciate it, so thank you. I'll put it on my business card. He says, all right, now that I've butted you up, I have a question for the podcast. A few years ago, when I was a share advisor member, I purchased shares in Retail Food Group on your recommendation. He says in brackets, that one's on you, Scott. And yes, it really, really is. Uh, that one went horribly badly. I still I still don't feel like, anyway, long, long story. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that was... Uh, something we should or could have avoided, but that, that's a that's a story for another day. Anyway, he says, when things went badly and you recommend to sell it, I did not. I think mostly because I'm always a slow seller. That one's on me. Fair enough. I still hold the shares, but my investment is now down 98.3% and 
and worth a grand total of $19, which makes me realize it has also two bagged from its all-time lows. There you go. That's a win. You obviously had $9.50 at one point worth of RFG shares. He says, I use NAB trade and the minimum trade amount is 500 bucks. My RFG holding would have to do roughly 25 bag from here just to reach the amount at which I can sell it. My question is this, what are my current options with this holding? Is there any way I can sell it to realize the capital gains tax loss to offset other gains? Am I stuck with it until it reaches some minimum criteria? Thanks. Keep up the podcast. I listen every week on my cycle to work. Full on, Colin. Sorry, Colin. That is absolutely on me, mate. My apologies. I did, though, as you say. So it's just sold a little bit earlier than now. So maybe the whole parcel problem is not all my fault, but certainly if the stock had been a winner, you wouldn't have this problem. So I'll, I'll absolutely wear that loss. I have to disclose, by the way, Doc, I actually own a small amount of RFG, uh, which I bought at, at around those all-time lows. I think I bought them at 14 cents. Now, I'm still down on that, by the way. It was a terrible, terrible bit of... Um, like I thought, you know, it was either going to be worth more or go broke. I'm still not sure those two options aren't aren't uh, the most likely set of outcomes. It probably is worth more or it's going to go broke. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm sitting on a loss in the moment, Doc. So I, I share some of your pain, Colin, though, not 98.3% of it. What are Colin's options, mate? Um, uh, I don't, I don't know. This is I was, I was going to complain about brokers that have these <laughs> stupid minimums, and you know, um, you know, uh, if you've got nineteen dollars worth of shares and it costs you nineteen dollars to sell them, and you need to actually buy more shares to actually sell them, that's really a bad deal uh, overall. So I don't know what you know. Uh, I prefer my brokers to charge me nothing and allow me to trade even one share. So um, yeah, maybe you need better brokers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, I think it's a bit ugly. Um, I, Colin, I would I would be inclined to contact NAB. Um, buying a small parcel is absolutely true. I'm not entirely sure whether they would exclude you from selling what you have. So that's one thing. Um, I dare say though that your trade is the brokerage is probably going to cost the cover the the cost of the uh, the trade, but the tank, the capital gains loss is actually really worth harvesting even at that price, right? So while it costs you money to get rid of, um, even if it costs you more than you got to get rid of it. Ironically, it would actually lock in a, a, a capital loss that you could otherwise use to um, to offset other tax. So there, there's reason to do it. Contact NAB Trade, just see if they will do it for you. Um, I don't know the, the story, the details there, um, but just see whether that's of, of value. Otherwise, mate, um, there are other options. I don't know if NAB Trade participates, but you can gift your shares. Um, there's a shares gift or share gift program that I think NAB Trade might be part of. I'd have to check. Um, so see if that's an option. Again, what, whether you choose or not, it's completely up to you. I'm not mandating you should make a charitable donation but if you're, you're giving away 19 bucks worth of shares you can crystallize that loss that might be another way you can do it um short of that um this is a double problem but but bear with me if the capital gains tax is worthwhile and i'd have to do the maths as to how much you might have invested given the percentages you talked about i haven't done that in my head yet um, you could actually buy and then sell 500 bucks worth of shares so you, you buy 500 bucks worth of shares you know with 519 dollars worth and you sell all of those You'll pay two lots of brokerage, but again, if you get away with that for 30 bucks and then you get a tax deduction of, I don't know, a couple of hundred bucks, that still also might be worth it. So there are there are three different options for you there. First, go to NAB, see if they'll do it for you. Second, see if you can give them away. And thirdly, if you can, and if you want to, see if you can, um, as it, it sounds stupid, but if the only option left is buy 500 bucks and sell 519 bucks worth, um, that might get you get you out of trouble um, and, and unless you crystallize a loss for, as Doc would say, too much brokerage, but probably the brokerage is less than the capital gains or capital loss, I should say, that you'll incur. In other words, it's still worth probably doing. Hope that helps. Doc? Well, there's a fifth option, find a better broker. <laughs> oh, can you imagine the paperwork of transferring 90 bucks worth of shares though? Well, it's just, well, I would is, pay to avoid that. This, this, is a, this is a classic case of why you need cheap brokerage and why you need, uh, yeah. 
yeah. it's a classic example. I'm going to use this as an example of why <laughs> we need better brokerage. Does anyone Australia? I don't know. Anyone Australia does doesn't have minimum parcels, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I can on my Charles Schwab account buy exactly one share and sell exactly one US, share. Yes. Nobody Not complains about it. Well, maybe somebody should do it. That's I think you know. Yes, uh, right. you say find a better broker. There may not be a better one. It's all my, my point. There might be a better option at this point for for ASX shareholders to, to buy or sell one share. Something that's that's why innovation is needed. Look out for Doc Trade coming soon to a uh, brokerage screen near you. Mate, question from Blurman. Blurman says, "Hi Scott, I know you discuss it semi regularly on the podcast, but is there an international share trading platform you recommend?" Here we go. I know Charles Schwab has been mentioned previously as well as Saxo. I use Comsec for the ASX, who offer international, but uh, uh, but at between ten dollars up to a thousand dollars, twenty bucks up to ten grand, and thirty dollars up to twenty five grand, is it easier just to have one institution to handle it? Um, I wouldn't use one institution for the sake of it, Blow Man. If if it, it, it depends on how many trades you're making, right? If you make two trades a year, then you know the hassle and whatever is probably not worth it because you've probably also got some cash sitting in that account. That's probably going to cost you interest or lack of opportunity to earn some money. Um, so kind of up to you. I, I use Schwab for US and I use Comsec here. Uh, if I was going to buy like one US share a year, I'd probably just use Comsec because just because I'm lazy. Um, but I, I don't. I don't think there's any. There's no. There's no real benefit other than pure laziness. Benefit for having one broker. Um, use as many brokers as makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I would. I use Schwab. Use Saxo Doc. I think um, I would happily use Comsec, but I. I, I, oh well, I said happily. I have no problem using Comsec because I wouldn't use it for the trading costs. I think you can find better trading costs somewhere else. So I wouldn't recommend it, but also wouldn't you know, criticize people who chose to use it just because for, for simplicity's sake. Doc? Um, I use Charles. I use uh, Saxo. Um, and I guess you could use, you can look at using Stake. So there's quite a few options there in terms of um, yeah, heaps of, there's there's a lot more out there now in terms of choices. There's IB, which is a little bit more complicated to, I guess, in, interactive brokers. Yeah. Maybe a little bit harder to use for uh, in terms of the user interface. So there's, there's, yes. there, there are a few um, options. Again, yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this over the long term, then it's it's good to have a good platform that you can continue to use. That's true. Um, over time, and yeah, so I think it's worth the effort trying to find a platform that works yes. for you. Yes, that, that's absolutely true. Um, on the flip side, of course, like changing banks, if you get a better offer, by all means, change it. So, don't lock yourself into a um, to a, to a inferior broker and feel like you have to choose that forever. But by all means, absolutely, as Doc says, <laughs> changing brokers just every so often because you chose a bad one or you didn't think far enough ahead is probably going to cost you some cash. All right. Question from the second part of Blue Man's question is also, I sold some real estate this year. And so I'll have about 250K to buy ASX or international shares over the next 12 to 18 months. It's kind of cool. Well done. To optimize dollar cost averaging, he asks, especially in these turbulent times, would you spread that money over 12 to 18 months? Doc. Yeah, so this this is a difficult one. So this is basically how do you invest a large lump yeah, sum? Exactly. Um, it, and the, the, this is difficult largely because it's not. So there's a theoretical answer and there's a practical answer. And the practical answer, the theoretical answer is just you could invest if you have a long time horizon, you could invest all of it at one go. And as long as you have a long time time horizon and you the volatility doesn't bother you. Uh, <laughs> you're likely to come out ahead with that approach, right? Yeah. That's the uh, the logical answer. Now, the problem with that is that what is logical, you know, exactly as we talked on Friday, all these SOPs around and they're basically trying to use behavioral biases to, for people to do different things. People do different things because their mind works in strange ways and it's, it's not a fault of uh, blurb man. It's, a, it's, it's just yeah. how we are designed. So 
my own preference has been and if i have a lump sum is to in, is to spread the investments over a bit of a time uh, largely for two reasons one is um i like to think about ideas over a period of time and then i just get the dollar dollar cost sort of averaging you know it gives me sometimes mm, i get mm. a better deal sometimes i get um you know i actually pay up more um and that's what i do but if if you can be completely logical and completely agnostic to volatility and you can completely forget about it just invest all of it at one go and then come back in 10 years and see how it did yep good idea I, I mean, this is this is purely this is purely an emotional question for you, and I don't mean that anyway pejoratively. Um, I've said many, many, many times. I'll say many more times. Um, the investing psychology part of investing is is super, super important for a million reasons. Um, mathematically, you're actually better putting money in the market earlier rather than later over time and by average, right? So, uh, market goes up over time. It, most days of <laughs> most trading days over the last century, the answer would have been put money in now. Put it all in now because you're going to have most upside now. If you don't, the day before the 87 crash or the day before the Great Depression or the day before, you know, COVID, uh, February 19, I think it was, uh, you'd lose 30% of it. You'd call me an idiot and you'd be right, um, or at least you'd have some reasonable um, understanding to a uh, reason to have a go at me. Uh, but on average, over time, the market will go up. And so the earlier you put money into the market, generally speaking, the better you'll do. Now, that's easy to say. Um, but as Doc said, there's a whole lot of other things that go behind that around how do you feel about that? Uh, the great thing about dollar cost averaging is if the shares go down, you get to buy ch- ones cheaper. If they go up, at least you made some profit. So it literally is this, you know, as as kind of, you know, kind of um, only only partially formed evolved humans that, that don't really cope with that sort of stuff well. The benefit of dollar cost averaging is just this great emotional kind of crutch, right? So it's a fantastic way to do it. So that's why we recommend it. It's a really good idea to do. If I've said before, I think hypothetically, if you'd have, if you give me the, if you, someone said to me tomorrow, you can have now interest-free your future, you know, contributions to shares over the next twenty years. And invest them today for nothing. I would do it in a heartbeat. If I had to do it on one day, no matter what happens tomorrow, I'd do it because there's every chance that over the next, you know, twenty years, I'm going to be buying a higher price than I am today, and so I'd do it now if I if I had the choice. But as I said, that's that's just me, and I'm, I'm probably a bit more um, uh, risk tolerant. Well, volatility tolerant, actually, not risk tolerant. Doc takes more risk in investments than I do, but I'm more volatility tolerant than most people, so I'd be happy to do that. Um, the good thing about your question, though, mate, the two hundred fifty grand is a large chunk of change, right? That's that's more than most people will invest over decades, or or at least you know, yeah, probably a couple of decades for most people. Um, you get it all in one go. That that is, you know, so the, what happens to this money is far far more important than probably what happens to the next five years of monthly or fortnightly contributions. And so, I you know, because of that, because of the emotional toll and particularly the financial toll, dollar cost averaging is always smart. I think twelve to eighteen months to me makes a whole lot of sense. Um, if you get the opportunity at some point to take advantage of something and go for it and maybe you know don't don't lock yourself in for the sake of it um, also think about how much money you're adding over the next 10 years because let's pick a number let's say you're going to add 50 grand over 10 years we've got 250 grand now the fact that this is going to be you know the vast vast bulk of every money every dollar you commit between now and then between now and 2030 uh, you want to make sure you're investing that well and investing that right so think about things like diversification think about things like portfolio construction too because you can always sell stuff of course uh, but as you add it to the market kind of think about this with a 10-year perspective on what stocks you want to own how you want to own them what you want to be exposed to because um, this this is a really good chance to to get it right letting off from the front any more from that doc i know that's a great answer thank you mate it's unusual for me question from anthony hey scott I had two questions, which may be interesting for the mailbag pod. It certainly is, Anthony. That's why we're asking them. Is I was examining the extreme opportunities best buy this week, and I was intrigued by one of the recommendations. It prompted me to examine their annual report and the investor presentation. He says, I'm no expert, but 
I fight my way through the documents in an effort to learn. I was aghast to see the company appeared to have very few customers and secondly, an unusually high revenue concentration with three of the customers representing almost half of their revenue. It says, does revenue concentration factor into your thinking and what level would it concern you? I'm a little concerned and wondering if I'm jumping at shadows. Full on Anthony. So Doc, I love this question because customer concentration along with supplier concentration are things that people don't often think about until they go wrong. So I love the fact that Anthony's thinking about this. Um, this is a small company. It's a reasonably new company. So that's, I imagine, part of your response, Doc. Feel free to disclose the company if you want to, but also feel free not to. Um, your thought about how you think about where companies are in their life cycle, things like the number of customers, how important those customers are to them, and how they go about creating value or how you will have a risk in that sense. Yeah, so I'll not mention the name of the company uh, largely because I think this company is still under the radar. Um, it, and it's actually not a small company, not well, it's small relative to like a bank, but it's not <laughs> as tiny as uh, as a typical um, extreme opportunity. So this company basically provides software uh, to the insurance sector. Now, without naming the company again, uh, um, and I think the reason here... Okay, so the reason it's concentrated is that the customer base that it can actually provide this to is, <laughs> yeah, that's right. is, is there's a limitation there. If, if, you're, if, you're applying, if you're supplying banks, there's a decent chance the top four banks or at least some of those would be your biggest customers because the banks are so huge and there's so few of them. Exactly. Right. So that's the, sort of the dynamic here. Yep. Uh, in, in many ways, it, it, it'll almost seem like this is like, a, it runs a bit of a monopoly in terms of <laughs> the, the solutions that they're offering. And, and so like, Customer concentration is a risk. Um, it's 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 actually this is exactly. I'll I'll read this part out uh, in our risks and when we would sell, we did point this out that revenue is highly concentrated in a few customers. Three large customers accounted for fifty one percent of the revenues in half year twenty. Right. So what you'd watch here is customer churn. We would be concerned if there is customer churn, but these guys right. don't have customer churn. They have been acquiring customers. So. Um, Yes, in in the ideal world, we don't want this kind of concentration. Yeah, but in you know, we made an exception because we thought this is a really high quality company that uh, is providing a valuable tool to an industry that is in the midst of making changes. So yes, it's a risk that we're willing to take, willingly taking, keeping our eyes open. Um, in general, it's not a good thing. In this particular case, it you know we chose to. No, factor yeah. it into our into our considerations. And I think I think I think that's you're asking you're asking exactly the right question. Um, I think that the reality is you can't. Well, you could avoid every risk out there, and you end up in cash, and that'd probably be the biggest risk of all, right? It's getting, getting a zero you know, percent return in the bank. Um, so I think yeah, look, you're right to identify it. That's absolutely the the key question. We um, different company. Uh, but we talked about Nearmap earlier. Um, it lost a couple of big customers in the US last year, I think, Doc. And those two or three customers were a decent chunk of revenue, maybe 12 or 15%. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of stretching from memory here. Um, that, was a, that was a bad outcome, right? The share price got smashed. It was a pretty ordinary time to go through. Um, the, the, the reality, of course, is the flip side is, well, you know, if you don't have those customers, um, you know, if they'd sat around, would they be worth having? Absolutely. You know, do, do we want our custom, our companies not to take those customers on because just in case things go badly? Um, it's, it's a risk and it's a risk you have to acknowledge and, and understand and accept. Um, one of the things I will say, mate, is is this one a point I make relatively regularly. And I'll probably make a lot more regularly in, in the future because it's super important. And it's one that's implicitly everyone gets, but a lot of the questions we get are company specific. And I don't blame you for asking them, by the way, Anthony. It's not a, not a slide on you, mate. Um, but we talk about individual companies and their risks, and that's right. 
but everything is part of a portfolio or should be part of a portfolio. So if I have one company with, with concentrated customer risk and that might go badly, then cool. I played like as, as you heard earlier. I recommend a retail food group, right? It didn't have a customer concentration risk at all. It had plenty. Of, it had you know thousands of franchisees and hundreds of thousands of customers. Um, was that a better business than this particular company? Well, so far, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe it turns around, but um, you know. So so uh, you know the risks that exist are absolutely big deals. You should be mindful of them, aware of them, and, and take them on willingly. But I wouldn't avoid them for that reason, unless unless there's a reason to believe those customers are going to go away or there's something going on, and you absolutely want to be mindful of it and realize that if they lose one of them and they probably will at some point i guess almost by definition then there might be a, a, some short-term volatility at some point when that happens uh, yeah. but just just be just be mindful of that take on the risk but take 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 a portfolio risk where you're saying two percent of my portfolio is exposed to customer concentration risk rather than this company is, is exposed to customer concentration risk therefore i won't do it because gee amazon could have gone broke apple could have gone broke that you know we could have done a list of risks for bhp for csl um, which are all true they're all true risks the fact they may or may not come to fruition, though, shouldn't keep you away from investing at all. Yeah. So uh, I'd just like to quickly add something. Uh, to it. So Anthony's question is actually fantastic. It, it is yeah. something that we, uh, at least it is one of the things that I try to actively look for. So, I, you know, I would bet a large number of people would, or not a large number, I'd bet a fair few people would be turned away or turned off by the fact that this has this kind of concentration. Yeah, totally. Right? And, and that's an opportunity. <laughs> if you can I like dig, it, okay. right? I, One of the things I like to do is I like to think what people are ignoring and why. Yeah, and right, if okay. I can convince myself that there is a good reason to actually think the other way, yeah. you've got an opportunity, right? Yeah. And I, here, here's what we found, right? So its largest client has been a customer for 16 years. Right. Its second largest client has been a customer for nine years. Yep. And two other top 10 clients have been customers for between 13 and 15 years. This is this is a company providing a mission critical mission critical software mm-hmm. with really really long uh, standing relationships. Right? Does that mean that it is um, you know not going to you know not going to have churn? Mm. It doesn't, but it, it gives us a fair bit of confidence saying, well, you know, if this company is fairly valued and maybe underpriced for the relative growth that it can deliver, um, has this kind of sticky relationship, probably it's okay. Yeah, I like that. It's a good point. Um, and yeah, I get it. I, I just. Even you know we, we have risks in our in our in our recommendations and those risks actually sometimes happen and that's exactly what you would expect but by, by definition right so um, the fact that risk is a risk is not hey here's the thing that other people worry about that we don't worry about because there's nothing there's no risk free when we do our risk we literally say here are the things we think could go wrong we hope they don't we hope it's worth investing anyway but if they do at least you you know you know what to expect you know what to look out for and that's yeah. that's kind of how we do it risk free is cash. Which is very high risk, actually, because you get highest no returns. Yeah. Highest risk, right? Because you you don't lose cash, yep. but you get no returns. <laughs> it's, it, quick, a quick tangent, quick high cost tangent. Um, people say shares are risky. They are. They absolutely are. Individually, in short time frames, they are immensely risky. The volatility is phenomenal. Over time, they have the best performing asset class over decades, right? So, what is what is riskier, owning shares or owning cash? Well. Again, you know, if if you want to really, again, we talked on Friday about the whole quantum idea of you know at a, at a small level at a high level. If you if you want to if you want to kind of look at you know take take the ocean from the sky right from 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 space, you know, is, is it really that big a deal? Well, no. But if you're sitting on a boat, it feels like a big deal. Um, the big picture is really what you've got to focus on. It's so so important, right? Don't be scared of individual companies as part of your investing um, because of the presence of risk, and certainly over the long term. As a diversified group of companies, shares have been spectacularly successful. And yet, when people say, "Oh, I don't know, that's too risky," I invest in something else instead. 
it, you just got to be really, really careful you don't end up missing the forest for the trees. All right. Question from Mark, mate. I like this question from Mark, um, mostly because I feel like I owe him something. So here we go. Mark says, hi, Scott. Hope the holidays are going well. They were, Mark. Thank you again for asking. One for the mailbag. He says, I'm on ShareAdvisor and Extreme Opportunities. I love them both. Good man. See, that makes us happy, doesn't it, Doc? We like mm-hmm. to. We like agreement. Hey, speaking of which, if you want to join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities or Motley Fool Share Advisor, we have a special page for our podcast. So they can go and do that, mate. So if they want to join you at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, yourself and Kevin, you can go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That will give you access to join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities for, as I said many, many, many times, a stupidly cheap price and much less than a cup of coffee a week. I, if you're not a member, I like... I, I've said before, man, this is this is horribly self-serving, right? But it's also true. Both of our services combined cost so little. If you have any sort of portfolio or you, you, you want to build any sort of portfolio at all, to not at least have a look, I think would be madness. But, uh, you know, people spend all this money on all these other things. You, you, go and, you go and drop five grand on a, on a specky miner, right? And you're not going to spend a couple hundred bucks on a, on a couple of investment services. Anyway, that's just my little frustration. Uh, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast to join Doc and Kevin or go to fool.com.au SA podcast to join myself and Andrew at Motley Fool Share Advisor. Uh, we try and do the middle high cap kind of companies, middle large cap companies, growth companies, generally speaking, with an occasional bit of value thrown in, a bit, bit of turnaround or something else. Um, we've got a nice little turnaround playing out nicely actually right now, Doc, you'll be happy to know. I know I, it's not your thing, but... You yeah. know what I was saying? You made a mistake when you just announced it. Oh, do I? Yeah, you said or. <laughs> Go here or she just have said and here and maybe so you should. I wonder if I get the guys to put a podcast page together, which has both services on it. I yeah, ask them to do that. side by side. There you go. Well, yeah. no, you join both. You tick the box. You join both services. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, why or when you can do and, <laughs> exactly. it's easier. <laughs> there you go. Listen to the doc. He knows his stuff. Fool.com.au forward slash eo podcast and fool.com.au sa slash sa podcast. All right, that's add over. Back to Mark's question. He says, "My, I like this. My podcast listening statistics for this podcast say I've listened to you guys for two hours, two days, and four hours. Mate, 52 hours. He says, crikey. No wonder on Sundays my girlfriend Marjorie gets a tad irritated. He says, so could you please do a hello to her? She is French and just about to start investing on the French bourse stock market to buy CNDX, which is a NASDAQ 100 ETF similar to NDQ in Australia. So hello, Marjorie, or uh, bonjour, if you like. I don't know how I did on that one, but let's try. Marjorie, was it Marjorie? I put it probably a hard J. Is it Marjorie? Marjorie? I was really worried about butchering the name because I was not really <laughs> you sure. You let me do it. Thank yeah, you. So I thought you could do it, and I could just say, uh, you know, bonjour, and not actually pronounce the name because there's a risk <laughs> I'll get it wrong. Uh, Marjorie. Oh, story uh, of my life. Marjorie. I think we've just said it. There you go. So yeah, yeah. Well, I'm taking the risk. Yeah. Following your own track. Uh, yeah, no, I like it. I like so, it. So yeah. Good day. Hello. <laughs> Bonjour. Very good. Bonjour, Marjorie. All right. Thank you for listening, both of you, and thank you for putting up with. Uh, thank you for putting up with Mark listening to us as well. We appreciate it. All right. Mark has a question as well, uh, and he said, I, "I felt like I, I was obliged to answer the question given Mark uh, is putting Marjorie through listening to us." Today's problem has me vexed. I have two bundles of money, one personal via Comsec and an industry super account in the pension phase. Interesting. The problem with the super company is the only shares they allow me to buy are a limited number of ETFs and the ASX 300. I have three ETFs, NDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100, which I have the maximum allowable holding, IOO, which is a global top 100, and the US S&P 500. I want to half my holdings in the international ones as they are doing stuff all. The other ETFs they offer are doing worse. 
I'm looking for good quality growth ASX 300 companies to replace the ETFs. I already have CSL, Megaport, and Appen. My main stock advisor extreme opportunity shares are in my Comsec account. Are there some good growth ASX 300 companies I should be looking at that are not on ShareAdvisor or EO? Or should I stick with the ETFs, the Global 100 and the S&P 500? Thanks in English and merci beaucoup in French. Marjorie, I apologize for my horrible hashing of both the French language and your name, uh, but I've done my best. Mark, uh, thanks for the question. And Doc, what do you reckon? Okay, so I was going to say, first thing, I think is there's probably a fair bit of overlap between the Global 100, I think, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ. <laughs> so I think he's, you're right, right on the money in terms of thinking, yep. well, you know, if you have got all three, I think you're going to get over allocation of certain things, under alloc- you're going to get a bunch of other things. So it's it's worthwhile thinking about which ones uh, you like. Um, we both like the NASDAQ 100. Um, uh, so, you know, where our preferences, uh, you know, there are actually recommendations in the services. So, um, so that's that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's worthwhile definitely looking at what these other things have. Um, and the, the, the frank thing with ETFs is there are so many of them that it's really hard to know which one has what unless you actually are looking very carefully. So it's, it's worthwhile really looking at it. So that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, in terms of ideas for ASX 300, um, I think ShareAdvisor would typically not go outside the ASX 300. Uh, well, I mean, there's no rarely, mandate, but rarely. rarely. Yeah, You'd just be outside. because of the size of the companies are less than that, yeah. 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 We would, uh, EO Extreme Opportunities would, be between the ASX 200 to anything really after ASX 200 and anything um, typically again is there's no such thing that says that you can't have a larger company or a smaller company but yeah we'd have stocks that are out probably outside the ASX 300 uh, is there anything else to look at well you know you've got the you've got I guess two of these things to look at do you really need something else mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know exactly what else would you want <laughs> exactly um, it's a good question look I, we, we would claim no absolute lock on all the best companies there are growth companies I haven't recommended and growth companies stock hasn't recommended and vice versa right so um, are they almost certainly yeah there's stuff we've missed so yeah are there companies outside the, the group yes if there were though that we thought worth investing we'd already recommend them so it's a, that's a bit of a maybe maybe it's for us somebody else because we, we've already recommended the best ones we can find um, I think that's right I, I've got to say I, I would I don't know what other ETFs they offer um, I wouldn't I have to say look the only thing I'd say Mark I wouldn't worry so much about what they've what the ETFs have done thus far you know it's one of those things about um looking at the past to predict the future. If the ETF's done badly thus far, then that's kind of only part of the story because what they do in the future is far more useful. Um, single example, we recommended Vocus at Share Advisor for 18 months, two years, it did literally almost nothing. It was about two bucks a share, just sat there and 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 then went to $9 in short order. Now, I'm not saying ETF will do that. It clearly won't, but I just, I wouldn't look only at past performance. As we always say, past performance, no guarantee, but particularly on an individual share ETF basis. I'm not saying they are going to do well, by the way, take your own view on that one um i certainly own i own a, I own a global etf and i own a nasdaq etf uh, but i but I, you know it's all about the future rather than the past so don't sell them just because they've done badly thus far sell them if you think the future is probably not quite so bright um i what i do like about those is the international exposure doc's right about the fact that nasdaq is already part of that but you are getting extra companies global 100 i assume i, I would guess 60 percent of it's us probably 40 percent's not um so by definition maybe that's i don't know 30 nasdaq companies 30 non-nasdaq and then 40 international so there's there's some diversification you get from that same with the s&p it's probably i don't know half nasdaq half not give or take 
Um, so you're getting some extra diversification. But as always, think about the combination because the exposure to the NASDAQ is obviously your NDQ exposure plus whatever proportion of the other two are NASDAQ as well. But you are getting something extra. And I guess you have to think about, is it? do you want more Australian exposure relative to that international exposure? Uh, we've got some great companies in SA that I think are good growth companies. We've certainly done pretty well with some of them. Um, so yeah, I, I, there, there are obviously companies that I have missed and will miss. Um, so by definition, there's others outside there, but we've already got the ones we think are best inside the, uh, inside the service already. Any more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. Very good. One last question. Let's do Can it. I sneak one under the under the line. Mm-hmm. All right. I like this. So we talked a little bit about this, but Dylan asked this question in a very different way. So Dylan says, "Morning, Scott and Anirban. First off, thank you both for sharing your knowledge, experience, and insight for the rest of us. Pleasure, mate. Also, more importantly, thank you for the banter. Now, I like that question when you well, that point when you first made it, Doc, and he said, "More importantly, thank you for the banter." I think he's inferring our banter is actually more useful than the rest of our knowledge which i kind of i'm not sure whether to be happy about or not <laughs> is, is it a compliment or is it something else that's what i'm thinking i think well you know the, the knowledge is okay the banter is better it's really saying well your knowledge is crap and your banter's is decent and thank god there's some banter anyway let, let's assume he's being kind uh my question is one in relation to asset allocation how do you decide between adding to existing positions or buying a new company for the portfolio if you save 10 grand for example would you spread this across existing positions use it to buy stock in a new company or both how does one in that case decide which company to add more capital to? Falling stocks at cheaper prices or stocks increasing but therefore buying less shares or fewer shares due to a more expensive price? Would love to hear your responses full on and keep up the great content. So this is what we kind of talked about a little bit in the past. What I liked about this though is it's a lump sum and you're trying to work out how to build this particular portfolio. So maybe start there, Doc. How do you, how do you allocate 10 grand to an existing portfolio? Yeah, so like, you know, so like I don't have any, I don't have any fixed rules. So, and the reason I don't have any fixed rules is, you know, rules are meant to be broken. And um, so I have like some higher level philosophy, I guess, around this, which I can share. So what what I tend to do is I try to, like on a on a rolling basis, I have some favorite ideas, and and if I'm going to invest some money, I'm going to put it onto my favorite ideas at that point in time. That's the, sort of the high level idea. Yep. And, and typically I don't try, I would not try to spread it across two or three different companies. I would, you know, like something like 10K, um, I would try to put maybe in across max of two companies. That's, you know, mm. um, that's what I would do. And then the other thing I try to think about is, the only other consideration I have is I just look at the weight of, um, the of the company. So if it is a, if it's an existing company that I already hold and I'm going to add to it, then I do consider the the allocation I've already got, and I try not to be over allocated. That's important. Yeah. And 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 if it's a new idea versus an existing idea, I actually tend to favor uh, adding money to an existing idea that I have already or an existing alloc- existing holding, largely because I know it. And, and if if I have thought that this company should be like six seven percent of a portfolio but it's only two and that's where the money goes yeah, so nice. it's really it's really a combination of those sort of things yep. to decide again yeah i think that i'm i would i think i no no argument there mate. we've agreed a lot this couple last couple of podcasts but uh, we'll try to fix that next time um i would i'm just i'm, I'm just gonna sort of say exactly what you said but probably in the way i think about it process wise the first is i try and find my single best ideas and i say right where, where do which which company do i like most right now where do i want to put my money 
And if that company's, I'll, I'll pick companies that we don't really recommend because it's just easier than trying to, you know, give give disclaimers and clarifications. If I think Woolies is the best company on the ASX at the current price, and that's the one I want to buy, that's the first thing I need to do. I don't think about what I already own. I don't think about how much of each I've got. I don't try and even think about necessarily a whole lot of my, you know, kind of, I don't try and, I try and necessarily construct the portfolio before I put the companies in. So I so, say, right, Woolies is my best idea. My second best idea is BHP. Let's use those two. Um, completely hypothetical, by the way. I don't, I don't recommend either of those two, but let's go with that. I look at, I look at my portfolio. And go right. Okay, I want to buy. I think Woolies is the best idea. I think, oh, actually, I've already got fifteen percent in Woolies. Okay, well, I probably wouldn't buy it. Or I might say, well, I've actually got Coles and West Farmers already. Yeah, I've probably got too much, you know, non-discretionary retail. I don't, don't want to buy Woolies. Or I might say, um, look, I don't. I, you know, my portfolio is ninety five percent Australian. I actually want to buy international shares, as we said earlier in the podcast. Just because the ASX doesn't matter. So I might say, well, I don't necessarily want to buy. So I would almost, I'd find the best idea first, and I discount it back based on what I already own in the portfolio and where I, what I want for my portfolio. And then I might go, okay, well, like I, BHP is my second best idea. Um, I've got no miners. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that instead of Woolies in this particular instance. And, or, or conversely, it could be the other way around. It could be something entirely different. So I wouldn't try and either add to existing companies or buy new companies for the sake of it. I try and find the best companies I can, a bit like Doc said with exchanges. Just find the best company you can and then work out whether it fits given your current strategy and the current portfolio you hold. Um, think a little bit about, so yeah, the other bit about you know rising and falling prices. No interest, don't care, Dylan. I've bought I've bought companies at you know continually rising prices in the past. I bought companies at falling prices in the past. I've I've uh, bought more treasury wine estates, for example, which I hold when the shares had fallen. I bought more corporate travel when the shares had risen in previous years. Um, so neither matters. All that matters is is today's price attractive relative to the future of the business. Try desperately, as I've said before, to put the graph away. Don't worry about whether they've risen or fallen. Just say right. Does today's price represent value? Um, if it's already you know. Amazon at, at $9 was cheap, at $20 was still stupidly cheap, even though it had doubled. At $100, it was stupidly cheap, even though it was up tenfold. Um, on the flip side, plenty of miners that went broke were cheap all the way down and then eventually went broke and clearly weren't cheap at all. So don't ever, ever look at the share price movement if you can avoid it. I think that's all I've got for that one. Doc, any more thoughts on that one? No, I have nothing really to add. In that case, our work here is done. That is fantastic. But... Before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe, you know how this goes, to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app, or of course, the Podcast One app. We're part of the Podcast One family and proud to be so. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a review, leave us a rating, throw us some stars, as our co-founder David Gardner likes to say. Um, it helps people find the podcast, it makes us feel better. And hey, we're doing this for nothing, you know, throw us a couple of stars, come on, help us out. Uh, but in all seriousness, it does actually, the, the, the feedback you give, both when you give it and what you say about it, really does help the podcast find other people. So if you are enjoying it, please do us a favour. Um, again, I know it's a bit, of a bit of a hassle, but please do it if you can. It helps other people find it. We think it's pretty good content. We hope that people are benefiting from it. And if more people find it, then even better. Yes, probably help our business. So I guess that's, let, let's call a spade a spade. Um, but we're not getting paid for this through this particular podcast. We don't, we get a little bit of revenue from the ads, I suppose. But um, this is all about helping the world invest better. That's what we're kind of here for. So we want to do that too. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley for Money and this special mailbag edition. We'll be back on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. See you then. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.